Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Stephanie Everett. And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 469 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, Stephanie talks with Brian Cuban about his book, The Addicted Lawyer. Today's show is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do our show without their support. So stay tuned because we're going to tell you more about them in just a few minutes. So Stephanie, I and I think the entire Lawyers team were very pleased to have Brian Cuban on the podcast because he's talking about very important matters here. And he's very candid with his very important matters. And Brian talks a lot about addiction, as you can imagine with his book, The The Addicted Lawyer. But in that, I think the conversation lends itself to a little bit different way of approaching the podcast this time. So we've got a little bit, a little bit of change here. Yeah. I mean, he even says that he thinks the power is in his story, Mm -hmm. like him being so honest and open about where he got to where he is now is part of what he does and what he teaches. And so I think what people are about to hear is that our conversation starts out and he very openly tells his story. And to be honest, it flows a little different from our normal sort of back and forth conversations we have for people. And Mm -hmm. when I was having this conversation with him, it never felt appropriate for me to say, "Hey, let's take a let's take a break and hear from our sponsors." Like it's just not how our story <laughs> went. Right. So, in the moment, I said, "You know what? Let's do this episode a little different." So, if everybody will, you know, stay with us, we're going to hear from our sponsors right now, and then we're going to really have an uninterrupted conversation with Brian so that you can hear from him the power of his story and how it got him where he is now. And I hope that it helps anybody who may be struggling. But my cue is stay to the end, because I think my biggest takeaway is what I need to do differently in my life. And it applies to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a powerful takeaway for everyone in this story. I think that's a good point is that, you know, we can all be on different levels of the spectrum as it relates to this topic. But it is, in my mind, important for every single person out there. Yeah. So let's take a listen to um, the messages from our sponsors, and then you'll hear my conversation with Brian. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to lawyerist listeners. 
Visit posh.com forward slash lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com forward slash lawyerist. And by LawPay. Don't be the last to discover why the legal industry is raving about LawPay Pro. Say goodbye to manually recording your working hours and chasing down late payments. Accurately track time, reclaim billable hours, and get paid faster with all the billing and invoicing features you need in one easy-to-use tool. Plus, plans start as low as $19 per month per user. Visit www.lawpay.com slash lawyerist to learn more. As a lawyer, you're working with thousands of client documents, trying to improve collaboration, and looking to leverage technologies that help make your work more efficient, all while keeping your confidential data secure. Experience a better way to work with NetDocuments, the number one cloud-based document management platform for law firms of all sizes, whether you have one lawyer or dozens. Find out why law firms are increasingly making the switch to NetDocuments to secure, organize, automate, and collaborate on their most important documents, emails, and digital discussions. To learn more, visit netdocuments.com lawyerist. And for a limited time, lawyerist listeners get 10% off. Check it out and get started at netdocuments.com slash lawyerist. Hey, my name is Brian Cuban. I am a lawyer, although I no longer practice law. I'm a person in long-term recovery from uh, alcohol and cocaine. As of this broadcast, I have over 16 years in long-term recovery. I am a mental health advocate and addiction recovery advocate, primarily in the legal field. I'm also an author. I've written a couple books, my memoir called The Addicted Lawyer, and my foray into uh, novels, legal thrillers, called The uh, Ambulance Chaser. Nice. Well, welcome to the show, Brian. I am so delighted to be able to talk to you today. For those who might not be as familiar with your story, obviously you mentioned it in your intro, but maybe you could briefly share your journey with us and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Uh, just to give you the, the, the Reader's Digest, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania, though I live in Dallas now. I'm the middle of three boys. People might know my older brother, Mark, from the Shark Tank in Dallas Mavericks. I have a younger brother, Jeff. Neither of them have struggled with addiction. It all seemed to have fallen on me. And I've also struggled with bulimia and eating disorder. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. About 50% of all those with eating disorders are, in fact, male. That may mm. be surprising to some of your listeners. Yeah. By 18, I was struggling at Penn State University. I was struggling with alcohol and by the time I graduated from Penn State, I was a full-blown, quote-unquote, alcoholic, alcohol use disorder. By the time I was 20, I was struggled through al- I struggled with alcohol through law school at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and that uh, made it difficult to do well. <laughs> I uh, graduated very near the bottom of my class. It's funny, I didn't even bother going to graduation because I was so ashamed and so ambivalent about law school, and uh, it was all about my drinking and my binging and purging. But the the serendipitous thing about that was back in 2021, during one of the ebb and flow of the pandemic, I was invited and gave the keynote commencement speech to oh. their 2021 graduating class and wore the cap and gown for the first time. Nice. Good for you. Congratulations. Thanks. I graduated Pitt Law as an alcoholic, alcohol use disorder. And alcoholic is a label. I, I You can't see me do it, but I put air quotes around alcoholic. Because it's a label we give ourselves. It's not a diagnosis. Mm. It's a very often very helpful label, right? Because it allows many people to say, okay, maybe I am this and have a problem. But the actual diagnosis is alcohol use disorder. Mm. 
and there are a couple different empirical tools that are used, uh, such as the audit scale, A-U-D-I-T, to determine whether someone has low alcohol use disorder, moderate alcohol use disorder, or severe alcohol use disorder. But for the purposes of this podcast, I will use alcoholic okay. as the label. I appreciate that. So I graduated from Pitt Law. Then I moved to Dallas, Texas. The summer after I moved to Dallas, Texas, I discovered cocaine, added that to my repertoire. And before I knew it, I was uh, addicted to both alcohol and cocaine. And I was always a shy kid growing up. I was a heavy kid. I was even uh, physically assaulted over my uh, over my weight by some bullies. Mm. So I had kind of I have a lot of trauma in my childhood. And it caused me to really have a very negative self-image, whether I got thin or muscular or whatever. I always saw this as I was often called at school, this quote unquote fat pig in the mirror. Mm. And so cocaine for a few moments, for a few seconds, for a minute, as long as the high lasted, I looked in the mirror and saw an attractive, cool guy versus this awful kid, this self-hatred that I experienced in my young 24, 25 years every day. So I wanted that feeling, and I became addicted to cocaine psychologically, and uh, I would become physically dependent as well, two different concepts, addiction and dependence. Mm. Dependence is how the body responds to the drug and comes to crave it, whether it's opioids or cocaine or whatever else, whatever substance. And addiction is more of a behavioral aspect, obsessive compulsive drug seeking behavior in the face of known improbable consequences. So I hit both of those. I failed the Texas bar three times. I did pass the Pennsylvania bar, but I failed the Texas bar three times because drugs and alcohol were more important than studying. The first time I took the Texas bar exam in a uh, roach infested no-tell motel outside of uh, Fort Worth, Texas, my study aides the weekend before the exam were three and a half ounces of cocaine, affectionately known as an eight ball, a fifth of Jack Daniels and a liter of tab and some Barbary books I'd borrowed that weekend. <laughs> so as you might imagine, I failed. Yeah. And I failed again, but I finally would pass and uh, become a Texas licensed attorney who was an alcoholic, who was addicted to cocaine, and not quite the uh, resume for the successful practice of law. I had my moments where I made good money, but was I an ethical lawyer? No. Was I uh, a competent lawyer? Not always. Certainly not while I was struggling with drugs and alcohol. And so your listeners may be wondering, wow, does this guy still have his law license? Has it been suspended? No, but it, I still have it, but it wasn't for the lack of trying to lose it. Yeah. And I say that tongue in cheek, but if you say open the Texas Bar Journal, and every state has their own bar journal, whatever they call it, and in the back, there tend to be what we unfortunately refer to as the pages of shame, right? And you look in the back, and you're looking for the people you know who have been disbarred, suspended, reprimanded. It's just sheer luck that my name didn't end up in those pages. And if you were able to talk to a lot of those people, especially in the disbarments and suspensions, there's going to be a pretty high correlation to drug and alcohol and other mental health issues. And it tends to be among solos and mm. small firms that this occurs, much more so than the big law and the AMLA and such, although they struggle too. Those people struggle too. But uh, you, have much, you have, don't have all the backstops you have to catch it in the solo field because of the social isolation. Makes sense. And so at 25, I became suicidal. My first of two trips to a psychiatric facility, I was arrested 
for DWI. I beat that. <laughs> I, I fortunately beat it one of my nine lives because the state trooper didn't show up to testify against me and oh, <laughs> prove up the breathalyzer. That's the only reason I beat it. And then uh, three failed marriages. One more I get a free set of steak knives, <laughs> but all because of drugs and alcohol, although I have the one more and we're very happy yeah. and uh, been, to get, been together over 18 years and are going on 18 years. Lost all my clients. The word gets around. Went to work for my brother, Mark, when he bought the Mavericks. That didn't work out because of my drugs and alcohol. And here's where privilege comes in. It got to the point where if not for a family supporting me, I'd have been on the street. I'd have been homeless. And it's important, and I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge the privilege I have enjoyed in both addiction and recovery, whether it's you know a skin color privilege, financial privilege, last name privilege. I've had a lot of privilege that 99.9999% of the you know, addiction population and population in general does not enjoy. But even when you talk about solos and a small firm in terms of privilege, uh, even health insurance can be a privilege. Yeah, I've had that as well because I know solos who don't have health insurance. We have this trope that lawyers are all successful and they, you know, they have this and that. But uh, that's not always the case. And there are lawyers, though, even though you have health insurance, you are de facto uninsured because the only way you could get it was to have a deductible so high and you don't even have the you don't have the finances to meet that deductible or you couldn't afford insurance with, with adequate mental health coverage or any. Uh, we have to include it now, but it's not really good mental health coverage or addiction coverage. So there are all kinds of layers of privilege with regards to addiction and mental health. They say addiction doesn't discriminate in terms of it could hit any individual, but in terms of demographics, it kind of does. It'll hit underprivileged demographics differently. It'll hit socioeconomic demographics differently. So we have to always keep those things in mind, I think, when talking about addiction and mental health. But for me, in my privilege, I still was unable to competently practice law I was doing cocaine in the state courthouse in Dallas, the George Allen courthouse. I was doing cocaine in the federal courthouse bathroom. I remember one of the last cases I tried, and it was a bench trial, not a huge deal. It was for the client, but and I hadn't prepared the way I should, and I'm driving down to the courthouse, and I had a panic attack. I pulled over the side of the road and snorted cocaine off the back of my hand. That's how I dealt with that's how I dealt with things with cocaine and alcohol. And so uh it got to the point where I was just existing. I was not practicing law. I really was just being supported by my family. And then in the uh, Easter weekend 2007, or I'm sorry, it was uh, January 2006, I was out at one of my week-long birthday bashes that started when the cocaine came into my possession and ended when the cocaine was gone. And I was out and I met a girl and she didn't drink and drank light, didn't do drugs, and we started dating. I guess I, wa I wore one of the last kind of Phantom of the Opera masks to convince her that I was this upstanding, respectable lawyer, and I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, we started dating. We moved in together. And I, and, and I remember when she moved in with me, one of my friends said, uh, and this was 2006, one of my friends said, you do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. How's that going to work? Mm. And I said, well, I'm going to stop. And so now this is we're in 2006 and my first line of cocaine was in 1987 and I'm finally entering the stages of change 
where I'm starting to think about this, but you can move in and out of the stages of change. And I moved right back out of it. She moved in with me. I'm just hiding it better. And people may ask, well, how do you hide that? You're living with someone, you're married. I talk to lawyers all the time. I mean, their spouses may suspect or this or that, but they're hiding their cocaine use. They're hiding their opioid use. They're hiding their drinking to the degree they can, or they think they are, right? right? They think they are. And I thought I was. She, I know she suspected that something wasn't right. And it was Easter weekend, 2007. She went away for the weekend to visit her parents. I went out and the next thing I know was two days later and I'm lying in bed. She's looking down at me. It's now Sunday evening, late afternoon. And this, she left Friday. I'd had an alcohol and drug induced blackout. And there was cocaine on the dresser. There was Xanax, black market Xanax, because I was cocaining through the night and Xanaxing through the day. I've gone to hearings under the influence of Xanax and uh, still high on cocaine. I remember I got called down to a temporary ex parte TRO hearing where I just popped, you know, popped a Xanax. I went down there and I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And the judge said, uh, TRO denied. Fortunately, uh, it was one that was going to, uh, I was going to win regardless. And that's, life and that's not on you you know where addiction is concerned in the legal profession you think i'm a unicorn but that's not unusual that is not unusual were the judges were other counsel you know aware i mean you talked about hiding it from this woman that you were seeing but it some might just be surprised to see like wow somebody could show up high on cocaine and xanax and function in a courtroom function is a very relative term (laughs) yeah fair okay there's what I call the Peter principle of addiction in the legal profession. And this can apply to any profession, any job. So let's say you're working for a firm. Let's say you're billing. When you're running on all cylinders, you're, you're sober, you're billing, a, you're giving a dollar ten for a dollar, right? You're just killing it. All of a sudden, uh, drinking starts creeping in, and all of a sudden, it's 90 cents for a dollar. All of a sudden, it's 80 cents for a dollar. All of a sudden, then it's, you're giving 60 cents and 50 cents, right? And so what happens is the Peter principle, we work up to our level of incompetence, and then we're supposed to, when we hit that level, absorb information, get that information and work higher, right? That's how we advance in organizations. Mm -hmm. But what happens is with addiction, that line of incompetence keeps dropping, 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 gets lower to the floor, lower to the floor. And instead of saying, maybe I have a problem, we kneel. We kneel under it so we could tell ourselves we're still giving that dollar for a dollar and everything's great. So at what point do people see that mm-hmm. in the courtroom, in the law firm, whether it's a colleague, if you're a solo, it might be in the courtroom because you may not interact or a spouse. Well, they may see it halfway up. They may see it three quarters up. But will they say anything? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't want to get involved. So there are all kinds of reasons people give for, you know, tell themselves for not reaching out and saying, are you okay? So I don't know that anyone didn't notice it. Mm -hmm. What I know is no one said, are you okay? Mm. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm sorry. Like, I think we need to do better. That's probably part of the reason you're out here telling us this stuff. I mean, Oh, and we are doing better. The legal profession as a whole is doing better. But I'll circle over to my, you know, because this was my rock bottom moment. So people probably wondering how I, you know, what prompted me. So I have this incident where she's looking down and she didn't know about any of this stuff. And I'm looking around trying to explain this law and order episode orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. 
And all I could think of was take me back to blank. And I named the psychiatric facility I'd been to. And she's, well, you've been to a psychiatric facility before? And obviously, well, we'll talk about that later. And so we get down there and she's crying and I'm thinking she's gone. I'd leave. And she stood by me and we dated for over a decade while we rebuilt the broken trust. And now we're uh, going on six years of marriage and almost 18 years together. So not all relationships will survive it, but ours was able to. But it, I had to do the work for me, not for her, not for my cats, not for my parents, for my siblings, because, you know, spouses do leave. Mm-hmm. Spouses pass away from diseases, from cancer. Pets die. Parents die. We And I've experienced many of these things in recovery. And it. All of those can be triggers for relapse, and it has to be stronger than all of those. But now we're, I'm thinking, okay, should we go down to the psychiatric We're standing in the parking lot for the second time in my life of this facility, and at that moment, I decided I'd had enough. Why now and not when my brothers dragged me down to a, the same facility less than two years before when I, uh, they came into my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand? I can't say. If I could figure out that, I'd win the Nobel Prize for mental health. But I don't know. But I was ready. And I I didn't want to lose my family. I remember that. And so the next day, I began my journey in the rooms of 12-step. I was also seeing a psychiatrist. And I finally got honest with my psychiatrist. I'd been another privilege, obviously. Lying, lying, lying. Well, why would you lie to your treatment provider, your psychiatrist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate. Mm. I was ashamed. And I finally got honest with him, and he suggested, uh, quote-unquote, rehab uh, treatment. Rehab's a slang, uh, but uh, treatment. And I refused because I was much too important a lawyer with no cases and no, and no, and no, no clients and no money to go to treatment. Ego's still way up here. But there was a uh, the 12-step room right next door. And for those who do not know what 12-step is, Alcoholics Anonymous is the most well-known, but there are other 12-steps. There's for opiate, for narcotics. There's Celebrate Recovery, which is Christian-based. There are other 12 steps. There are several others, skipping my mind. And so I walked into the room for the first time, April 8th, 2007. And when I sat down in that chair, crying and I smelled, I wasn't thinking about being an alcoholic. What was on my mind was if sitting in this chair, this uncomfortable hunk of plastic will allow me For the first time in my life, to wake up the next day, walk to the bathroom mirror, birthday suit naked, and love who I saw without the aid of alcohol or drugs, I would sit. Mm -hmm. And so I continued to sit, and I continued. I still meet with my psychiatrist or speak to him, whether it's uh, Zoom or whatever, once a week. I take antidepressants. I decided to get out of the practice of law for many reasons, but I never I went to law school for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue as well that I see with law students. I speak at a lot of law schools and law students there for they don't want to be there and they don't want to be there. They have other passions. Maybe they're first generation. Everyone in their family is a lawyer. They have all these pressures and maybe they want to do this or they want to do that. And that kind of stress can exacerbate depression, can trip someone over into problem drinking. And what happens in law school, it's called the kick the can syndrome. And this is important to young lawyers, whether it's solo or in firms, because it's natural to be afraid that you won't get your license Mm -hmm. if you seek to anyone to help. Now, things have changed and states are changing, but 
they're not changing fast enough, right? The only question should be, can you practice law now? Are you okay now? Right. It shouldn't be, have you ever received this? Have you ever received that treatment? That Because, of course, nobody wants to put that down on their application because that could delay getting licensed. Right. And I know people what's happened to. They put them through hell in different jurisdictions. And so we, they say, well, I'll kick this can into the practice of law and I'll deal with it later. I'll think we're a profession of thinkers. I'll think my way through this later. And they do that and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then I'll, well, I'll think through it later. Later, later, because now I'm making money. Now I have a family. Now I've made partner. I'll just later. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the Peter principle of addictions at play and it drops off a cliff, right? With malpractice, you wipe someone out on a highway or all the different things that can happen. You're breathalyzed in the courtroom. See that happen. And now, you know, it's not only mental health, but you have the state bar on you. And so uh, that can become a real issue because the state bar's job is they want you to seek help, but their job is to protect the public, protect the integrity of the profession. And so you steal money, you do that, and, you know, we, everyone wants you to get help, but you're done. Yeah. Obviously, you're very vocal with your story now and having written the book. I'm just curious, what do you hope your story can do? What do you want people to take away from hearing this and what kind of change are we working towards? I want people to know that we do recover and that as counterintuitive as it seems in the moment, that don't do as I did. The goal should be to recover at the highest possible point, you know, as you're going down, not the lowest possible point. Rock bottom is such is a misnomer that I hate mm. because we shouldn't be waiting for to get disbarred to commit malpractice, to go to prison before we seek recovery. Let's try up here. And the problem becomes that when you're right in the middle of it, there's very little self-awareness. That's easier said than done. And people may be struggling with this. Let's say, yeah, right, right. It is easier said than done. So it becomes about compassionate community. And as much my as my message to the individual struggling, my message is to their community. Who is your community? Surround yourself with people who are not going to turn their head, right? And you have to be willing to look at someone, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a uh, family, and say, are you okay? Or if it's just so bad, say, you're not okay. I don't know why you're slurring your words in front of the judge, but the the judge isn't saying, I'm going to say something. Yeah. You're going to get breathalyzed right in the courtroom, and then you're in real trouble. And it may not be that drastic, but use the two astrals. Say, are you okay? And before that conversation breaks, say, do you know that you can come to me if there's a problem? And if you're really worried, say, are you really okay? How are you really doing? Mm. The three astral with the emphasis. And they may say fine, and they may go on their way, but at least you've opened the door in their mind. You may be the first person that's ever asked if they're okay. And at least you've opened a door. Now the red herring becomes, what do I do with that if they say no? If they say, no, I'm not, I need help. Well, it can't be performance art, obviously, because people know when you're insincere. But we have to take it upon ourselves to understand, at least at a minimum, educate yourself on the lawyer's assistance programs in your jurisdiction and be prepared with that information at a bare minimum. And do not be afraid to call the lawyer's assistance program 
and let them know about this individual. I've had experienced, savvy, seasoned lawyers told me I'm not calling them because I don't want my name out there that I called, which is just a complete falsehood right. that that's going to happen. In Texas, you can text to the TLAP, the tech, which I sat on their advisory committee for a couple of years, the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program. It's anonymous. And by statute, it is confidential in every single jurisdiction, however they phrase it. So it's not going to get to the state bar. What will get to the state bar is your misconduct. Right. Yeah. So the lawyer's assistance programs and understanding at least how they work is so important. I've talked to associates at law firms who haven't have no idea, even today, have no idea. They may have, you know, they may have come into their firm or this or or the last education they got about it was in law school when the program, whether it's lawyers concerned for lawyers lawyers helping lawyers or TLAP or whatever the name is in the jurisdiction have come into the law school. And that was the last they ever thought about it. Think about it. Have it ready. Yeah. Have some information at your fingertips because it may be your, that may be that colleague that your best friend that's struggling. You know, you'd get that information for your best friend, right? You know, at a minimum, if it's not about empathy and compassionate community, let's protect the integrity of the profession. Yes. I mean, as you were talking, what really resonated with me is Many states are now requiring on your annual application to say, you know, if you're a small firm, if something happened to you and and you died, who would come in and help take over your files? This is a new question. Like we're trying to get lawyers primed to thinking about this. We should have that same question for if you're struggling, who's your support system? Where would that question be, though? I mean, it could be. I think everywhere. I mean, I'm just thinking about this. Except you put that on a bar application, then it becomes the same stigma. Someone has to admit. No, everyone. It makes me admit that I'm struggling. I think every single person admitted to the profession should have a support system. And we should. I mean, I would ask practice because it doesn't you don't have to be struggling with addiction to need support. Right. I mean, I think that's what I'm hearing you say is let's help people before they hit rock bottom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone should have compassionate community. And I, when I talk to people, again, I'm not a therapist. I'm only an expert in my own story. But I say, you know, who loves you and who do you love? Because people in the midst of depression may think no one loves them. Well, who's, you know, who's around you? You have the, you, my spouse, my kids, this and that. What, you don't think they love you? What are you projecting out? What are you projecting out? And, and when it involves depression, that's very tough. I struggle with clinical depression, major, major depressive disorder, and I still take antidepressants. And I, I've been suicidal in recovery. Mm-hmm. Mine exists independently of addiction. They're often, inter- they're often intertwined, but they can also exist independently. So, yeah, compassionate community is so important, whether it's in the profession, whether it's in our daily lives, our family life. You know, who is you? Who are you surrounding yourself with? And it's like spokes on the wheel, right? For every emotion, for every feeling, who's your person? Who's your person? We generally, when things are at their worst and we're in that black hole, we project out that no one wants to hear. We don't want to bother anyone. And suicidal ideation can come on in a second. In a second. I've been there. I've been there. So that is why compassionate community is so important, to try to plug as many gaps as possible. Yeah. I so love that. It resonates with me. I hope everyone listening, I know people will hear so much in your story, no matter where they are in their path. Everyone needs compassionate community. Absolutely. And, it, it, and especially, I'm a boomer, and especially for boomer aging, right? And you talked about having someone to take over. That's an important question just from a cognitive standpoint. 
vary because that's a really tough when you see somebody, a colleague who's struggling in the courtroom and and it may and it's not alcohol or drugs, it's a cognitive issue as they as they age or their their office work is, their pleadings or whatever. You just notice something and that's man, that that's a tough question. Yeah. So having that community who can watch and say, okay, how do we deal with that? And the lawyers assistance programs can help with that discussion as well when you see someone who may be struggling with a cognitive issue. Yeah, absolutely. So as we need to wrap up, are there any projects or initiatives or things that you're learning about? One of our values around here is stay curious. And I'm just, I'm curious about, you know, what's next for you in your journey? Well, I guess one outstanding resource that people are unaware of is the Lawyers Depression Project out of New York City. Mm. They offer anonymous groups and uh, look it up, yeah. the Lawyers Depression Project. That is a great online resource. And if you're a lawyer who is just, uh, again, we are a very 12-step oriented community. So, you know, the first thing that comes out of people's minds is always 12-step, 12-step, and that's fine. Although there are other ways to recover. You know, there are, there are online such as in the rooms. If you're so afraid of making yourself known, and just remember, there are those lawyers that you see going in there, they're in there for a reason too, right? When you walk in there, I was so afraid of seeing lawyers I knew. And you know, and when I walked in there, half the people in the room were lawyers I knew. They're in, there for, they're in there for the same reason. But even in small communities, Texas has a lot of small counties. I've had, and in Florida too, I had a Florida lawyer tell me I don't go to 12-step because someone might be on my, one of those people might end up on my jury. And I don't want them, uh-huh, whatever the reason, there's always a reason not to get, you know, begin the journey, but that's normal as well before you finally get where you need to be. But there's, there are resources like in the rooms, you can go online meetings are much more accessible now since COVID. So utilize the online method where you can just use a pseudonym and have the meeting where you don't have to show your face. So that's a couple. And as for me, I continue to speak at law firms. I continue to speak at law schools. I've gotten into the fiction writing. I've gotten into fiction writing. I'm a, I'm finishing up the manuscript of my uh, new novel called The Body Brokers. Okay. And no, it's not about uh, harvesting body parts. It's about a, a lawyer who gets drawn into the world of shady addiction treatment centers that are fronting for fentanyl distribution, that are really fentanyl distribution fronts trying to solve a murder. Okay. Well, we love a good thriller on our team. So (laughs) I can't wait to read that. We're going to put all the resources that you just mentioned in the show notes to this episode and also a link to your book, The Addicted Lawyer. I'm so grateful that you're sharing your story in such a public way. Well, thank you. It's so impactful. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at Lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to Lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.